Today, December 1st, is World AIDS Day. We continue to lift up the struggles of those with HIV AIDS, even as we celebrate the progress we have made in treatment. This prayer comes from the United Church of Canada. Spirit of life, open our eyes to the systems around us that oppress, hold down and disadvantage the most vulnerable in our society so that we may increase and abound in our love for one another and for all people. Open our ears to the myths, stereotypes, and lies that keep these systems going, so that we may increase and abound in our love for one another and for all people. Open our mouths to challenging conversations about race, sex, and differences, so that we may increase and abound in our love for one another and for all people. Open our hearts to the understanding that we are all affected by HIV AIDS so that we may increase and abound in our love for one another and for all people. In my family, my role at Thanksgiving is to prepare the desserts. Sometimes we stay very traditional with pumpkin pie Often, we also add apple pie. I've branched out with a few variations, but there seems to be something about my family, and perhaps this holiday, that wants to recreate the same experience over and over again. There is a precision to baking. All cooking is chemistry, but to produce a baked good the same way over and over again requires the proper recreation of all elements, ingredients, time taken, temperature maintained. You can't go closing the oven, pulling out the pie or cake or heaven forfend cheesecake or souffle or other truly delicate delicacy and sticking a thermometer in it. There's a process to trust that mostly happens outside of our sight in the darkness and warmth of our ovens. Irish mystic and poet John O'Donohue writes, when you sow things in the spring, you commit them to the darkness of the soil. The soil does its own work. It is destructive to interfere with the rhythm and wisdom of its darkness. If you keep scraping up the garden, you will never allow anything to grow. Gratitude is complicated. Here in this complicated season of gratitude, I invite you to take a look at the insert that was inside uh, your order of service. The image there, the Celtic tree of life, is also displayed on our tapestry to my left, your right. When first going to hang up this tapestry, it occurred to me it is almost impossible to tell the top from the bottom, which is in fact the point. That which is above us in the light is equal to that which is the ground below our feet. The things we sow in darkness that grow and thrive there uphold us and fulfill us and sustain us. They form us for good and for ill and for every complicated state in between. Please imagine for a moment that we're starting with the trunk of this tree, the middle, the axis, the center for the wild growth above and below. As we embrace the complexity of this season, the loss of light and warmth, 
We give thanks today for the complexity of the land on which we stand. I acknowledge this morning that this land has been home to humans for tens of thousands of years. Home to the Piscataway people and Tuscarora, the Massawomack who became a part of both the Seneca and Iroquois people, the Manahoac and other travelers of the Piedmont tribes of what are now Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. I speak their names in gratitude. I now invite you to settle comfortably into your seats, closing your eyes if you feel comfortable doing so. Give your hearts and minds and bodies to meditation on gratitude, reflecting on the words of our poet laureate, Joy Harjo. Perhaps the world ends here. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table, we gossip recall enemies and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor falling down selves and as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. Each tree grows in two directions at once, into the darkness and out to the light with as many branches and roots as it needs to embody its wild desires. Once again, these are words from John O'Donohue in his beautiful book, Anamkara. Let's look at our tree once again, up here in your order of service, wherever. We trace our way from our solid and sturdy trunk of gratitude, even if there are knots and bumps along the way. We trace down past the land on which we stand to the roots of our tree, the part of every growing thing that must rest, renew, and grow in darkness. Here I am going to confess something to you, my dear community. I struggle with darkness. I'm somewhat seasonally affected, and on cloudy days, and especially at this time of year, as the days grow shorter and shorter, I struggle. Perhaps some of you do too. 
When I try to work to reframe the apprehension and sadness that can come to me in the face of this darkness, I'll confess something else. I also struggle with all these agricultural metaphors. <laughs> perhaps it's because I've never lived an agrarian lifestyle. Perhaps it's because I cannot even be trusted to keep a succulent alive. I read John O'Donohue's metaphors and I understand intellectually, for example, that it would be a very bad idea for me to dig up the potatoes I've planted every time I read a new article about a better way to grow potatoes. But in plain fact, the number of potatoes that I've grown in my life is zero and is likely to remain zero for the foreseeable future. <laughs> in search of a more helpful metaphor, I have come to one that I would like to share with you now in a few moments of guided meditation. So once again, I invite you to settle yourself into your seat comfortably. Please place both feet flat on the ground, and if you feel this movement is accessible to you, please feel free to reach your arms up into the air as you deep breathe. Breathe in deeply, and let your arms come down into your lap as you exhale. If any of these motions feel uncomfortable, just make yourself as comfortable as you can be. Again eyes closed or cast your gaze downward if that's preferable. It is a beautiful fall day and you decide to go out exploring with a few friends. You also bring your dog with you. There are local legends of hidden tunnels nearby and they say that if you can find the right tunnel, one that came from an ancient castle, that tunnel might lead you to buried treasure. You and your friends walk into the woods. There are leaves crunching underfoot. You can smell the crisp air, feel the crackle of the leaves. Nearby, you can hear the sound of a running river. Suddenly, your dog runs ahead of you. He's sniffing and digging excitedly at the base of a fallen tree. You and your friends rush up to where the dog is and see a deep hole. You clear aside brush and debris and move some rocks. You toss a few small rocks into the hole trying to figure out how deep it is. Finally, you decide to slide into the hole. After all, you came here to explore. One of you has even brought a lamp prepared for anything you might find. It's scary sliding down the tunnel. The tunnel's over 40 feet long. It's chilly and damp, and of course, it's dark. When you and your friends are standing together at the end of the tunnel, you take a moment to get your bearings. You can hear water dripping somewhere. From above, you can hear your dog barking. There's a sound of scuffling, but it is just your friend's feet as they nervously try to see in the dark. Finally, one of you remembers that you have a lamp and lights it. Please take a moment to imagine what you might expect to see at the bottom of a 40-foot tunnel in the woods. All that I've been telling you is a true story. This happened in September 1940 in the French countryside. Four young men, led by Marcel Ravidat and his dog, Robot, found this tunnel and lit a lamp in this cave. What they saw when the lamp was lit was a glorious mix of colors, lines, and shapes. 
There were drawings all over the walls, animals of all shapes and sizes, bright reds and deep ochres and black lines and yellow highlights. The animals appeared to be moving in the light of the lamp. In this moment, these young men beheld the ancient cave paintings at Lascaux, the work of human hands from 17,000 years before, creating imagined worlds that had remained unseen for all of recorded human history. This was art grown in the dark. This was us, our human reflection. The cave paintings at Lascaux were creation, grown, preserved, protected, and only gifted back to us from our ancestors through the grace of darkness. I invite you once again to consider our tree. We have moved from the sturdy, if bumpy, trunk to the deep roots, and now to the growth above that which we see in the world, that creation which cannot occur without the work of darkness. Growth arising from human hands and human hearts, protected and preserved in darkness. It is this comfort, this thought, this beauty that I turn to in the coldest months and on the longest nights. The Paleolithic people who created the paintings at Lascaux worked mostly in darkness. They would light fires or place lanterns at the bottom of the cave to work. We have evidence of this. And they also constructed scaffolding to allow them to reach the higher and more remote parts of the cave. Also, we have evidence. Imagine standing on a ladder to paint a ceiling by the light of a candle set on the floor. Darkness and isolation allowed the pigments to remain in place to be discovered by four French teenagers many thousands of years later. After the discovery in 1940, the caves were opened to the public in 1948, after the terror of war had ended in France. Pablo Picasso visited the caves in 1948 and was said to have said, we have invented nothing. <laughs> By 1955, mold and lichens began to be noticed in the cave. The cumulative effect of so many humans coming to see the paintings, so much light brought it, placed into that space, it was harming the pigments on the wall. In 1963, the caves were closed to the public. One of the four young men who discovered the caves originally, Jacques Marsal, guarded the cave from its discovery onward, and in 1963, he became its official guardian. Jacques Marsal remained a guide at Lascaux until his death in 1989. There's much, much more that we don't know about the creators of the paintings at Lascaux or at any other Paleolithic site containing the art of our ancestors. But here's some of what we do know. We know that humans of all ages had a hand in creating the images at Lascaux. We even know that, as with modern humans, the majority of these creators were right-handed. How do we know these things? And that brings us back full circle to our hand turkeys. 
Hand stencils, like our turkeys, are present at Paleolithic sites around the globe, not only in what is now Europe, but in what is now Indonesia, Spain, Australia, the Americas, and Africa. We have found the handprints of our ancestors. In many instances, they are negative hand stencils created by holding a hand against the wall and blowing a pigment through a tube, sometimes a hollow bone, at the hand so that the outline of the hand remains. Early humans of many ages and hand sizes, and we know they had a rough life, many of them did not have all five fingers, they chose again and again to leave their mark by leaving the stamp of their existence on these dark and cool walls. They are some of the oldest art that we humans have. Art we have chosen to create again and again placing our hand, our own signature, a part of ourselves to outline for all to see. On the insert with your own picture of the tree and space for your hand turkey on the back if you would like to do that, you will see a shortened URL at the bottom. If you choose to type this link into the browser of your choice, I would invite you to do that after the service at your own leisure. Um, but if you would like to follow that URL, you'll be taken to an episode of the podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed, by the novelist John Green. It was his observations about Lesko in this podcast that planted the seeds for these reflections to return to an uncertain agrarian metaphor. I invite you to listen to it on your own if you should be interested, and that link should be good for, for a bit. If, you don't, if it doesn't work for you, feel free to email me. And right now, I invite you to settle into your seats one last time. This time, I invite you to keep your eyes open and take a good close look at your hands. Or close your eyes if you feel more comfortable and feel your hands. If you didn't make a hand turkey earlier and you have a writing utensil accessible to you, this also may be a nice time to do that or to color the picture. As you examine your hand, this most human instrument, that with which we plant, grow, and create, even in the darkness, I will share these words from John Green's podcast with you. Tourists can still visit an imitation cave called Lascaux II, in which the artwork has been meticulously recreated. Humans making fake cave art to save real cave art may feel like peak Anthropocene behavior, but I have to confess that I actually find it overwhelmingly hopeful that four teenagers and a dog named Robot discovered a cave with 17,000-year-old handprints, that that cave was so overwhelmingly beautiful that two of those teenagers devoted themselves to its protection, and that when we humans became a danger to that cave's beauty, we agreed to stop going. The communities that created Lascaux hunted and gathered, and there were no large caloric sur surpluses, so every healthy person would have had to contribute to the acquisition of food and water. And yet somehow, they still made time to create art. 
almost as if art is not optional for humans. The world rests in the night. Trees, mountains, fields, and faces are released from the prison of shape and the burden of exposure. Each thing creeps back into its own nature within the shelter of the dark. Darkness is the ancient womb. Nighttime is womb time. Our souls come out to play. The darkness absolves everything. The struggle for identity and impression falls away. We rest in the night. John O'Donohue. So I really appreciate Jen's reflection this morning on what grows in the dark. And since we have a few minutes, I'm going to tell you some things as well. <laughs> uh, what grows in the dark makes me think of, if, you, if those of you who were here last um, Sunday, remember that Mexican proverb that I shared with you, when they tried to bury us, they didn't know we were seeds, right? It makes me think, related to this Sunday, of a, a quote from our Unitarian forebear, Thoreau, who said that when he went out into nature and he knew that no seeds had been buried in a place, he didn't expect much. But if he knew a seed had been planted somewhere, he said, I often expect the possibility of great things, right? Like in that famous example of how an acorn becomes an oak tree, right? That's miraculous. So as we think about what grows in the dark, as you've been leading us through this, I love this picture, this image of from the, that the roots of a tree are often as big underground, right, as they are above. I love that Celtic image. Uh, to think about, so how many of you out there are um, winter people, just love the winter? All right, see, they exist. They exist. All right, how about who are my summer children? All right. All right, sweet summer child. All right, that's me. Uh, so I, I love the summer. I love the the energy of it. Being, you know, I want to get outside. I want to. But what I what I love about people who love the winter is that I have a lot to learn from them. Uh, and you know, we can look to folks that you know have a much worse winter than we do. Even just a little bit north today, right? They're having snow. They're having ice. So we can go even a little bit further to. Uh, the, the Danish are actually really uh, great at this. They have what they, they think of as like a spirituality of winter. Do you all know that word? Hygge, H-Y-G-G-E, right? It means uh, a spirituality, uh, intentionally cultivating coziness and conviviality and comfort, you know, just sort of really embracing how the winter invites you to, you know, spirituality of cuddling, right? So, uh, getting in blankets. So, you know, spirit, there really are times in our life for that spirituality of summer, of, of outwardness, of action, of complexity, of speech, of connection. But there are also, you know, to every season, turn, 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 right? Uh, that in winter, there's real value in thinking there are times also in our lives, seasons of our lives of inwardness, uh, when that's really valuable, of stillness, of silence, of softness, of letting go. And I think maybe the spirituality of winter has something in particular to teach us in this age when everyone is constantly saying they're crazy busy. You know, that I, I think there's something for us to learn about what grows in 
the dark. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, whose books are always worth um, reading, uh, talks about the dangers of what she calls a full solar spirituality, that, that pressure. Some of you may have found it. She talks thinks about it, that, that pressure to always be in the spotlight, like social media, right? That pressure to always be happy. That, you know, so that pressure to, that she says, in a time when it can seem like we have to always be bright and cheer and happy and light, there could be value in giving ourselves permission to wax and wane like the moon, to enter into a, a lunar spirituality as well, a spirituality of darkness. Uh, and with the, the spread of smartphones and tablets, we are arguably in the least dark time in all of human history the least dark time ever. And that's actually terrible for us evolutionarily. We evolutionarily developed to be like really down with darkness for large parts of the day and, and of the, the season. And I'm going to speak a little bit more about that in two weeks as I talk about the, the importance of sleep for our spiritual life, for our society, all of that. Um, I'm going to end this part with a quote. And then if you have more to say, we'll see. Uh, if not, I'm going to open it up. Uh, it's a quote from um, a book called Seasons at Eagle Pond by a guy named Donald Hall. He writes that unlike my love of summer, of heat, of long hours of daylight, some of us are darkness lovers. You're out there, I know. We do not dislike the early and late daylight of June, the whippoorwill's gray time, but we cherish the gradually increasing dark of November, which others of us dread. Uh, we wrap ourselves in that time in the prosperous warmth of wood, wood stove, of oil, electric blanket, storm window, and insulation. We are partly tuber, partly bare. And inside our warmth, we fold ourselves in the dark and it's cold around us, outside us, safely away from us. We tuck ourselves up in the long sleep and comfort of cold's opposite, Warming ourselves by the thought of the cold, lighting ourselves by darkness's idea. Or we are Persephone, gone underground again. Sheltered between stove and electric light, we hollow islands of safety within cold and dark. As light grows less each day, our fur grows thicker. <laughs> Jen, anything else? Can I that? To take a page from Carl's book, something that's on the cutting room floor from this, which apparently I could have left in. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> no, um, was to continue with the art metaphor and the creation metaphor in that last reflection. Um, has anyone heard the, the quote or term, joy is an act of resistance? We heard this. So this is a quote from a poet named Toy Derricotte, based in Pittsburgh and one of the founders of the Cave Canem um, school for African-American poets writing about their experiences in America. Um, and the poem is about the ironies and beauty of um, a black woman choosing to keep a fish as a pet, how much joy it gives her, even as it reminds her of the pain of the middle passage. I would share the, the poem with you, but it's actually not available online. Only tiny snippet. You have to actually like get the book, which I haven't yet, um, on the list of things to, books to read in grad school. So I'll get to that. Um, but that 
And Carl even observed the other week that we've been doing some, some justice, some heavy lifting, some concentrating on things that are in our world that may not feel of our creation, though they may or may not be, right, and, and how we can work and leverage and, and do the work of doing them. But I want to just honor the fact that taking the time to rest and to create art, even if you just sit here and doodle in your order of service or on your conveniently provided coloring page or dry hands turkey, which is that we have literally been doing this since we were human. That's part of actually what makes us. I would argue that the creation of art is part of what makes us human, is what starts to distinguish us. Uh, we don't know exactly where that, but we have, we have Paleolithic cave art going back over 40,000 years. And thinking about taking joy in creation for the agriculturally minded, for taking joy in your garden, for those who are winter people, but yet still love to set your seeds in, in, or look at your catalogs or whatever those symbols are that come to you during the darker months when you're planning what you will grow and giving your fingers and backs a rest. Just want to think about the joy that comes out of the time that gives you enough rest to go create, to go do work in the world. <laughs>